Happy Lord's Day to you. It's good to see you all. I wish that you could be standing where I am standing right now, for if you could, then you could see you. And it is a beautiful sight. I'm happy to be here and to be doing this, first of all, uh, because I love the Lord and I love His Word. Secondly, because I, I love you and it is my delight to give you the Word of God. And here's what's going to happen today. I'm going to be preaching a sermon from the Bible. Well, what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is a book. It is the Word of God. It consists of 66 smaller books. It's divided into two portions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is 39 books. The New Testament is 27 books. And we have been studying one of these New Testament books. It's the book of Hebrews. And for a long time, I've been saying we are almost finished. Well, today, we are finished. So let me explain what's going to happen. I'm going to read the last four verses in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 22 through 25. Then I'm going to take a long time to explain what they mean. And then very quickly at the end, I'm going to give you five points of application. But for right now, I would ask that out of respect for God's word, that you would stand and listen and follow along, turning your Bibles to Hebrews 13. Follow along as I read verses 22 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that we have now had an opportunity to finish this book of Hebrews, and I pray, Lord, that as we now head toward the finish line, I pray that your grace would be with us. Give me grace to preach passionately and compassionately, and Lord, please give the people willing ears to hear by your Spirit, Lord. May they be inclined to receive what will be proclaimed May it cause them to love your son, Jesus Christ, even more. And Lord, may it cause them, please, to leave this place being doers of your word. This we ask in the name of our King and our great high priest, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. And the point of the final chapter of Hebrews is that we are to be doers of the word. Repeat after me, amanuenses. That's a really cool word. Anytime when I'm reading a book and I see a word that I don't understand, I circle it and I draw an arrow up into the margin and I write vocab question mark. Amanuenses, what is that? Well, let me get to it. Once upon a time, people used to write letters. And when they were finished writing letters and they realized that they wanted to add a thought, they would use what was known as a postscript or a PS. Now, the book of Hebrews seems to have come to a close with the glorious benediction that we covered the last two times we were together, chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. This is glorious. This is fireworks right here. 
Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Fireworks, that's where you should end the book. But what time, what sometimes people will do is they will put a little tag on the end, and that's what we have here in verses 22 through 25. Uh, five short sentences which have been added to the end of the book, and incidentally, verses 20 and 21 are only one sentence in, in Greek, but now we have five sentences, and they come in the form of a P.S., the end of the book of Hebrews is an example not of the author forgetting something and then adding a P.S., but probably here's what happened. The author of the book of Hebrews used an amanuensis, uh, which is a fancy way of saying a stenographer or a secretary. The book would be dictated. The person working for the author would be the actual one with quill in hand and parchment on desk and would be writing what the author says. And then it was very common in the ancient Near East at the end of a book for the author himself to take the quill out of the hand of the secretary or the amanuenses and write out a short postscript or P.S., Probably what we have in verses 22 through 25 is written in the handwriting of the actual author, someone who is not known to us. Now, we have been in the book of Hebrews for what is now the 62nd sermon, and you have been hearing me say for these two years, the author of the book of Hebrews. I've never referred to this person by name because I do not know who this person is. I went into the book not knowing who the author is, and I continue to not know who the author is. And I want you to remember who the author is not, or that we do not know who the author is. The way I'm going to do that is to point out to you that this month, very ironically, Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson are both turning 80 years old. Paul McCartney said that his favorite song of all time was a song written by Brian Wilson, and the title of the song is God Only Knows. So, as to help you remember that we do not know who the author of the book of Hebrews is, I've put together a little song for you, which will help you to remember this. Here we go. Today we end this great book. We studied and we took a close look. We learned of Jewish history, but the author remains a mystery. God only knows who wrote Hebrews. I'm sad. I'm sad because we are finished, but the truth is not diminished. His radiance is ever brighter. But we still don't know the writer. God only knows who wrote Hebrews. Happy, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. So, 
As we are going to make our way through this postscript, uh, there are five sentences. There is no apparent outline to it. So what we're going to do is just go through it phrase by phrase, verse by verse, starting with verse 22. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Notice, first of all, and very importantly, that the author is very gentle and very affirming in this. Uh, The author calls them brothers or brethren or brothers and sisters, which implies that the people to whom he is writing, he believes to be saved, a part of the family of God. Now, please note that we are not born naturally into the family of God. We are born as sinners. We are born estranged, enemies, rebels, and we come into the family of God by adoption through the gospel, by being born again. Well, the book of Hebrews says a lot about this glorious gospel, which brings us into the family of God. Uh, Let me give you some examples of how Hebrews itself talks about how we get into the family. Hebrews 10.10 says that we have been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Over in chapter 9, verse 28, it speaks of Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, which is in part where we get the doctrine of particular redemption. He didn't die for everyone. He died for the sins of many. In chapter 7, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And these are just three examples of the gospel in the book of Hebrews. You know that the gospel is of first importance. We get into the family of God and we are called brothers and sisters through the power of the gospel. We're sinners. Christ died for us. We put our trust in him. We repent of our sins and we are adopted into the family and called brothers and sisters. And it is very important that this author lets them know that he thinks that they are saved. The author calls them brothers and sisters because they are of the same spiritual family, not through genetics or ethnicity or procreation, but by adoption in Christ. And how does Christ do this? Well, he does it by becoming a man in order to die for men and women, paying for their sins on the cross. Uh, We see this also in the book of Hebrews, speaking about the glorious incarnation, which is why we celebrate Christmas, Christ becoming a man, and then what he did in becoming a man. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, meaning we are human, he himself likewise, Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, For surely he is, it is not to angel, angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham in that he saves us. What did he have to do? Well, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation that is an atoning sacrifice, an appeasement of the wrath of God, the propitiation for the sins of his people. The gospel is of first importance. And so I ask the question today, have you been saved? Are you a part of the family of God? Have you been born again? Are you one that we could speak to and say, you are one of our brothers or sisters? Well, if that is the case, then this PS is for you. If you are not saved, then I would ask you, please, to speak to me at the close of the service and give me an opportunity to tell you about Jesus, our Savior. 
Notice also that in this ending, he speaks to them very kindly and very gently. He approaches them tenderly by using the words, I appeal to you. This is really important that you take note of this. I hope you see the heart of the author. He is, an, he is an apostle. He has the authority to command them. They have a responsibility to listen to him and to obey him. However, what he chooses to do is to approach them with a gentle appeal. This is exactly what Paul does when he is writing to Philemon. Philemon verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. And perhaps the most famous use of this tone of gentleness comes from the Apostle Paul when he writes Romans chapter 12, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Well, that's the gospel. I appeal to you gently, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Is it a command? Absolutely. Do they have to obey it? Oh, yes, they do. But the tone of the author is not one of a drill sergeant barking out orders, but it's a loving, kind appeal. See, what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 12 is saying, brothers, fellow family members, please listen. I am appealing to you based upon the gospel. In other words, I am appealing to you based upon what you have just read in the first 11 chapters. Now, in light of that, please, I appeal to you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I'm asking for your attention. I'm asking for your ear. I'm asking you to give me a willing spirit as you listen, but I am asking in a gentle way. Uh, This is an important point. The reason it is important is because in the Christian life, it is not only important what we say, but it's also important how we say it. And the author of Hebrews chooses to close out this letter or this exhortation with a gentle approach. I appeal to you, brothers, to bear with, to literally to listen willingly to my word of exhortation. Here's a good rule of thumb. When you are communicating with another human being, you should always be working with the assumption that the person to whom you are speaking has a thin skin. You remember in Dumb and Dumber when Lloyd tells Harry, and he says, no offense, but you are one pathetic loser. And then the response of Harry is, none taken. As if to say, no, it doesn't offend me that you call me one pathetic loser. And the reason that we laugh at that is because people, when they are corrected or rebuked or warned or someone says something ill about them, they do take offense. And when he says no offense taken, well, that is very much out of the ordinary. You should know that people are thin-skinned because you yourself, and I am with you, we tend to get our own feelings hurt. We like it better when people speak to us with gentleness rather than with harshness. And so, knowing that people have sensitivity and pride and that you always can't hit people between the eyes and expect them to thank you, therefore, appeal to them and speak gently. The author knows this, and so he asks them to bear with his word of exhortation. In other words, please listen with a willing disposition to what I have to say and obey. He is very gentle. Notice also that he does not call what he has written a letter. He doesn't call it a book. 
but he calls it a word of exhortation. This is significant. He calls it, quite literally, a sermon. Hebrews is a sermon. Uh, In Acts chapter 13, verse 15, Paul is on his first missionary journey, and he is about to preach a sermon in Pisidian Antioch in the Roman region of Galatia. He and Barnabas are in the synagogue. They have just read the Law and the Prophets, that is the Old Testament. And after the reading of the Scripture, there are people in the synagogue who want Paul to preach. And so in Acts 13, 15, they say, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation, For the people say it. In other words, preach it, Paul, preach it. And what does Paul do? He stands up and he preaches a sermon about Christ from the Old Testament. And by the way, the book of Hebrews is a sermon about Christ from the Old Testament, which comes to the conclusion that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. It is a sermon in written form. So get the picture. The year is about A.D. 66. You are a Christian. You have given your life to Jesus Christ. You are in a small house church, probably in Rome. You have been persecuted because you have been a Christian. You have been ostracized by your family because you are a Christian, because you profess faith in Jesus Christ. And you are tempted to leave Christianity and church and Christ and go back into Judaism because that would be the easiest thing to do. This very week, one of the members of our church told me that one of their family members left a Bible-believing church in order to go into a non-Bible-believing church because it would be much better for the family and they would catch much less grief for going to that other church. So they left a Bible-believing church to go to a church that does not preach the gospel. You're thinking about leaving Christianity and go back, going back into Judaism because your family would be very happy about that. And here you are in this little house church, and and as you're contemplating leaving Jesus Christ, there is this man, and this man knows about your situation. This man has been with you in the past. This man wants to be with you in the future, and this man has apostolic authority. And he hears about the wavering faith of the people in the congregation, and he wants to convince them to stay loyal to Jesus Christ. And so what he does is he hires or requests the help of a amanuenses, and he begins to dictate a sermon. In it, he is saying, I would love to be with you personally and to preach this sermon, but I can't be with you right now. And so he writes a sermon or an exhortation, and he sends it in the form of a letter. Now, the letter arrives via a messenger to your little house church. The church gathers, and you see that there is this new scroll that has been presented to the church. The people are gathering in fear because of the Romans and because of the Jews. And as the scroll is unread, for about an hour, you sit and listen to what we call the book of Hebrews. You have no idea that it is called the book of Hebrews. You have no idea that some guy in New York City in the 21st century with long hair on Father's Day is going to be preaching from the book of Hebrews. You have no idea what you're listening to. You have no idea of the countless volumes 
of commentaries that are going to be written about the chapters and verses of this. In fact, you do not even know that what you are listening to is going to be divided into chapters and verses because that's not going to happen for another 1,500 years. And you do not even know that what you are reading is a book because a book, as you understand it, with pages that you turn, is not going to happen for another three or 400 years. All you know is that you are listening to the words of a sermon or an exhortation about the person and work of Jesus Christ, and sprinkled in with those Christological truths are these exhortations or these, these warnings about how you should not leave Jesus Christ. Simply listening to what we call the book of Hebrews, And as this book comes to an end, this hour-long sermon, this author appeals gently to you. He calls you a brother or a sister in Christ, and that gives you encouragement. And then he says, what I want you to do as I appeal gently to you is to bear with or listen closely or willingly to what I have to say. Now, Why would this author make such an appeal? Well, the next word in our English text helps us out. That is the word for, F-O-R, verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for... I have written to you briefly. Whenever you see the word for, it signifies that there is an explanation coming, and indeed there is an explanation coming, and that explanation is going to clarify what has just been written for. I have written to you briefly. What in the world does this mean? How in the world can this author say that the book of Hebrews is a brief exhortation? Hebrews is not brief by New Testament standards. In fact, it is longer than 17 other New Testament letters. In fact, only Romans and 1 Corinthians exceed it in length. So how in the world can we call this brief or short? Well, one commentator said with tongue-in-cheek that the book of Hebrews was obviously written by a woman, for only a woman could classify this many words as brief. Happy Father's Day. Other opinions say that maybe the author was just being sarcastic. He knows that it's long, but he just sort of, to be sarcastic, says that it's short. Uh, Others say that he is being self-deprecating in calling it long. Uh, There is some evidence that uh, he is not referring to the length of the book at all, but it is just a way of speaking and that many letters in the ancient Near East used to end, be ended by using this same ending. So for example, in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 12, Peter calls what he has written short. A lot of commentators, and I mean a lot of commentators, think that what he is describing as a brief exhortation is not the entirety of the book of Hebrews, but only the portions of the book of Hebrews where he is giving them commands. So if you know the book of Hebrews, you know that about ten and a half chapters are actually what? I'm sorry, nine and a half chapters are what? It's Christological, it is theological, and then the very end of the book, that's where the commands come, and most of the commands come right at the very end of the book in chapter 13, and so maybe the 
exhortation portion actually is short, and that's why he's saying the brief exhortation is just the end of the book where he's giving the commands. I think these all have some validity or merit to them, but I read it differently, and here's why I read it differently. I think he calls it brief because the subject of Christ's superiority is so vast and bottomless that he himself feels like he has only scratched the surface. You understand the immensity of the things that he's talking about and how short, comparatively speaking, it is? He's only writing a little bit about things which are colossal in nature. John Owen, the English Puritan who lived from 1616 to 1683, says this about the word brevity in reference to Hebrews. And he says, Considering the importance of the subject matter, the whole purpose and ministry of the covenant and the institutions of the law and the office of Christ and the danger of their eternal peril, all that the apostle had written might be thought of as a short letter, end quote, and well said. In other words, in light of the gravity of the subject matter, much, 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 much more could have been said. It is proportionately brief. And you know, the author at various points in the book tells us that he wants to say more, but he doesn't have time to say more. So, for example, look in chapter 9, verse 5. He's speaking here about the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or in the temple. He's describing it and what is going on there. And he could go into a lot more detail, but he himself tells us that he doesn't have time to go into that much more detail. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 5. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have the information. He, he just doesn't have the time or the, the, the parchment space to do it at this time. There's another example of this over in chapter 11, verse 32. You know chapter 11 to be the faith chapter where he's describing the faith of all of the heroes of the Old Testament. In verse 32, he writes, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me. I don't have enough time. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. Look, I've told you a lot already about Noah and Abraham and so forth and so on. But there are other Old Testament heroes. I would love to tell you about these guys. Love to tell you about these women. But we don't have time to do that right now. For our purposes, we need to move on. I've already explained how faith was exercised in a lot of these Old Testament saints. But for right now, for the sake of brevity, I've got to move on. I think that's what he is referring to when he calls it brief. Look at this. This is one of the commentaries that I used in order to inform me about what the book of Hebrews means. This is a commentary by A.W. Pink. It is the fattest of all the commentaries that I used. It's over 1,300 pages, and he comments on everything in the entire book. But even in so doing, after 1,300 pages, he has not plummeted the depths of the book He has just scratched the surface, and the reason that is true is because the Word of God is bottomless. We will never in one lifetime get to the bottom of it. So even this can be said to be brief. If this is brief, how much briefer are the 13 chapters that we have? So the author 
says, I, I, I could have written more thoroughly, but I've chosen only to write with brevity. The question then has to be asked, what in the world does his gentle approach of appealing to them to bear with him have to do with the comparative brevity of the book? In other words, what is the logic of saying, I lovingly appeal to you to bear with my sermon because it is so short? On the surface, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of logical sense. Well, I think the meaning is this. I had to get to the point, and I had to get there in a hurry. And in so doing, I very well may have given you some stern warnings which you didn't have your seatbelt on for and which may have hit you hard. So, for example, he hits them really hard, right between the eyes, back in chapter 10, verse 26, when he says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Wow, that is right between the eyes, and that is scary. Or how about back in chapter 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The implied answer is we shall not. The sound doctrine of Hebrews is accompanied with some very bold, in-your-face exhortations. And I think the author is saying something like this. I would love to have been there personally and to talk these things through with you slowly and thoroughly, but given the amount of time and parchment that I have and given the urgency of the hour and given what is at stake here, I had to get right to the point. So please do not interpret that as any lack of affection or any lack of love. Rather, brothers, I appeal to you gently, read what I have to say, listen to it, and obey it. Let me illustrate it in this way. You're at a party. The party is loud. Everyone is having a good time. Your telephone rings. There's someone on the other end of the line telling you that a loved one has been taken to the emergency room and you need to get the details. As you're trying to listen, you cannot uh, hear what is being said. And so you say to the room, will everyone please be quiet? And as you are trying to get the details, people continue to talk. And then you say, will everyone please shut up? You get their attention so that they be quiet, so that you can get the message. After you've received the information, you turn to everyone in the room and say, excuse me, please, for being so abrupt and being so brash, but I had to get this information and I, I meant no offense by raising my voice or by using such direct language. I think that's what the author is saying here. I had to get to the point. So please bear with this word of exhortation. And North Shore Baptist Church, I would say to you, I appeal to you in love, bear with or listen willingly to my preaching. Listen to the exhortations which you receive from this pulpit and hear them as the word of God. Even if they are not fully developed in the pulpit the way that you would prefer that they be developed, even if they are overly repetitive, which I am sure they are, the reason I am sure that they are is because they are intentionally repetitive. Even if my tone or the examples that I use are of a probing nature, which may rub you the wrong way, brothers and sisters, bear with the exhortations that you receive as from God. You see, we are not exempt from following God's word just because we may have preferred a different homiletical style. 
I would say that oftentimes the sermons which help me the most are the ones which cut me the deepest. Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The PS continues in verse 23. The next sentence says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, uh, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So what do we know about Timothy? Well, first of all, here's what we know about Timothy. He's the only Christian mentioned in the book of Hebrews. The author doesn't identify himself, but he identifies Timothy. Timothy is this guy who Paul and Silas meet on what is known as the second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16 in Lystra. He, what do we know about him? We know that he's young. We know that his dad is a Greek. We know that his mother is a Jew. We know that he has a godly mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And we know that from infancy, they taught him the holy scriptures, which were able to make him wise unto salvation. Uh, We know that he had some health problems. He had a weak stomach. We know that he was a very emotional young man and that he cried a lot. We know that he was exceedingly gifted and he was excessively dependable. Uh, He is a pastor in Ephesus, and while he's in Ephesus, he is commanded to combat false teachers. Uh, He is Paul's true son in the faith, and he was Paul's traveling companion. And Paul's last letter was written to Timothy, and in it he tells Timothy to fulfill his ministry. I say it could be argued that Timothy is the silver medalist in terms of faithfulness to Christ in the New Testament, only behind Paul himself. He was a very gifted, talented, faithful young man. And Paul, for our purposes today, has warned him that persecution is part of being a Christian. In our scripture reading this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warns Timothy in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, now this persecution has come to Timothy. He has been put in jail, and Hebrews 13.23 tells us that he has been released from prison. Now, we have no idea where Timothy was. Probably he was in Ephesus, but we don't know. Uh, the circumstances surrounding his, incarna- his incarceration are not known to us. But these Christians would have known, and they would have been praying for him, and I'm sure that they would have been happy when they heard that he got out of jail and their prayers were answered. But there's even more good news to be added to that, and that is that if he gets to where the author is, and we don't know where that is, but if he gets to where the author is by the time that the author leaves to come to visit these people, then the two of them together will be going probably to Rome to visit the church there. Because remember in chapter 13, verse 19, one of the things that the author is praying for is that he himself could quickly come and join them. Well, if he gets Timothy to come to him before he leaves to go see them, the two of them are going to travel together. Now, since we do not know who the author is, nor do we know where he is, and we aren't even sure where this audience is, I think they're in Rome, but I'm not even sure, and since we know nothing at all about Timothy's arrest and his release, it would be foolish even to begin to speculate. But here's what we do know, and here's how we can be helped. One brother is writing with good news to a church about another brother, and the church would be edified by this good news Likewise, churches 
should never be isolated from one another, but we should be in touch with other churches. And when we hear bad news coming from other churches, we should be sad. And when a church member from another church has something good or happy that's happens, that happens to them, we should rejoice in their victory. But this doesn't happen unless we are in touch with like-minded believers in other places. Timothy has gotten out of jail. Rejoice. Valerie Keating has gotten her Irish citizenship. Rejoice. Ksenia Nazarenko has found a godly husband, and she's going to marry him next Saturday. Rejoice. The Cleveland Road Baptist Church in Athens, Georgia, had vacation Bible school this week, and 30 children attended and raised $1,800 for missions. Rejoice. Rejoice when you hear of good things that are happening to Christians who are in places where you are not. Never become so introspective about your own life and your own church that you are not aware of what God is doing in other places. When you hear the good news in other places, rejoice. The PS continues in verse 24, and it says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. You're going to need to put your thinking cap on for this one for just a second. This is the third time that their spiritual leaders have been mentioned in chapter 13. Back in 13.7, he told them to remember their former pastors, the pastors who are now dead. And he says, remember them and imitate their faith. And then in chapter 13, verse 17, they are to obey their current leaders and to submit to them. Now they are to greet all of the elders and all of the other church members. This seems a little odd, seeing as how if the letter was sent to this church and the elders and the members would be there, why would the people that are there be told to greet their own elders and the, their own church members when the greeting would just be read when the letter was read? Well, I think the reason why is because this seems to indicate that this particular letter was sent to a small house church in Rome, but there would be other churches in Rome or other parts of this, perhaps what would be a larger church where other elders and other members would be. And this author is saying, I want you to send greetings to all of them. Uh, they would be associated perhaps with a larger body in that city. And why is this true? Well, please keep in mind that Christians were not permitted to have large gatherings at this time. In fact, they weren't permitted to gather at all. In fact, they weren't even allowed to be Christians at all. So all of their meetings would have been secretive and they would have been underground and they would have been small. Remember what Paul writes in Colossians 4.15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Tiny little house church, I want them to receive greetings. Likewise here, this is probably a little house church, but they know of a larger work of God that's going on in their city. So the author is very familiar with this house church, but he's also aware that there are other pastors and saints and Christians in that city, and he says, give them greetings from me. Please know that giving greetings is more than just say hey. But to greet means to send the warmest regards with deepest affection. Uh, literally, uh, send them my love. 
So we've talked about Brian Wilson. Let's talk about Paul McCartney. In the words of the now 80-year-old Paul McCartney, this is quite literally, P.S., I love you. Oh, this Father's Day crowd is tough. <clears throat> so he wants a warm hello from himself to be extended to all of the Christians in that region, both the pastors and the congregants. And implied in this is that they themselves would be warm and outgoing to all of the leaders and the saints. And then the author adds something which is very interesting. He says that that greetings come to them from the Italians. Do you find it curious that the author doesn't mention who he is, he never mentions who the audience is, and he doesn't identify any of the Italians by name? Maybe he doesn't identify them by name because everybody would know who they were. So, for example, when Priscilla and Aquila, who had been in Rome, went to another place to assist the Apostle Paul, well, of course the church at Rome would have known that these Italians had gone out from them and their names would not need to have been used. Another reason why their names might not be in here is because if this letter had been intercepted in order to protect the Italians, uh, they would just... Uh, be referred to as the Italians. Or maybe there is another reason we don't know. But it is worth noting that this author says nothing about his own name, and he says nothing about who these people are. He just vaguely refers to them as those from Italy. And by the way, one of the main reasons why I believe that the audience of the book of Hebrews is from Rome is because if greetings are coming from those who are from Italy, it would seem to make sense that those who were receiving those greetings would then be in Italy themselves. Thus, they are known as the Italian people. Nevertheless, once again, what do we see? We see Christians wanting to extend warm love and greetings to Christians in a different location. Which brings us to the final PS, which is in verse 25. Grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. This is how Paul ends a lot of his letters. This is exactly how Paul ends the book of Titus. But as I stated a couple of years ago, I, I do not believe that Paul is the author of this book. Some people think it's Luke. Some people think it's Barnabas. I think it is Apollos, but I'm probably wrong but if indeed Apollos did write this, then it could be said that the book of Hebrews is Apollos' Creed. <laughs> Apollos' Creed. Thank you. A little, bit, a little bit better. That's good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter who wrote it because we believe that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the author. And this final mini-benediction is simply that grace be extended to all of them. This doesn't seem to end with fireworks. You know, I spent six years of my life watching every episode of This Is Us, and the final episode aired this spring. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it already. The show ends in a whimper with a dud. 
However, not as bad as the final episode of Lost, which also cost me six years of my life. I will forever believe that the final episode of Lost was intentionally bad, but that's another sermon for another day. Please understand what I'm saying here. We have been through deep Christological waters, and this is our 60-second episode. And now we are saying goodbye with grace be with all of you. So short and so to the point, not really what I would consider fireworks. However, before we dismiss it as a perfunctory ancient Near East farewell, let's look closely at these final words. And I'll submit to you that this is not a dud, this is not a whimper, this is not a formality. In fact, I will submit to you that these words are so profound that if you ever understand them and experience them, you will have exceedingly abundantly beyond what you would ever ask or think. Allow me, please, as we close, to let this author define what he means by the word grace, and he will do it in the book of Hebrews. Let's go back to the first time we see the word grace in the book of Hebrews. We are told that grace is the means by which Jesus was able to die for our sins. Chapter 2, verse 9, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus doesn't die for your sins. You're not going to heaven. How is Jesus able to die for your sins? Well, according to this verse, he's able to do it by the grace of God. That, that, that to me, you know what that is? That's fireworks. That, that's important. That's big. In chapter 4, verse 16, he invites the people to pray. And when he invites them to pray, both the place and the result are grace. Uh, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The place where we go to help is grace, the throne of grace. And what do we get when we get there? We get mercy and grace, unmerited favor. You know what I call that? That's fireworks. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal. May grace be with all of you. When he gives us grace, he's giving us what we need. When he warns these people about apostasy and, and falling away from the gospel in chapter 10, verse 29, he warns them about the danger of leaving Jesus. And he says, if you do leave Jesus, what you are going to do is you are going to outrage the spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of grace or the spirit that imparts grace. Our religion is a Trinitarian religion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is grace, the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is also the spirit of grace. The the entire Trinity is a God of grace. This author repeatedly exhorts them to press on. And when he does in chapter 12, verse 15, he he tells them that the way that you are going to do it is in a pursuit of grace. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. For to obtain the grace of God is to be saved, and to not obtain the grace of God is to be damned. And so you want to pursue this. You know what that is? That's fireworks. 
So grace be with you all is a profound blessing. And not only does it save us, but it also is the means by which we are sanctified. We are saved by the gospel and we are also made holy or progressively sanctified through the gospel. Chapter 13, verse 9 says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Grace saves you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. But, but, but it is grace that will take me home. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And so I think it could be argued that there's no greater wish than grace that could be bestowed upon someone. And that grace is in Christ Jesus. That unmerited favor brings us to the end of the book of Hebrews. Five application points before we leave. Point number one, speak the truth in love. I appeal to you. Bear with me. Never want to shrink away from the truth, but speak it in love. And this author has been very straightforward, but he has also said what he has said in love. You know, sometimes the difference between winning and losing your brother or sister is not so much in what you say, but how you say it. And so we're reminded in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It, it matters what you say. I'm not one of these people who think that just the way you say it is the only thing that's important. The content of the message is the content of the message, and it always has to be true. But never write yourself an excuse just because you said the truth. Because Paul says, I can understand all mysteries. I can have faith that he even move mountains, but if I have love, I am nothing. So speak the truth in love. Sometimes we're going to have to tell each other hard truths, but we never need to say it harshly. Application point number two is a short one, and that is stay in touch with our missionaries. And when you get the good news about what is going on in the mission field, report it to the church. I'm sure that everybody was happy to hear that Timothy was out of jail. Likewise, we all can become very happy in our church if we get updates from our missionaries, letting us know what is going on with them. And likewise, when they have hardship so that we might pray for them or perhaps assist them in practical ways, you as a church member, please be in touch with our missionaries. Application point number three, actively greet everybody warmly with the emphasis upon everybody. Greet everybody warmly. It is a command in scripture. We need to have concern for our pastors, we need to have concern for all of the saints. We need to send and receive greetings. I heard of a report recently where a person left a church because as he was walking down the hall of that church, there was another member of the church, and that other member did not say hello to him. And so as a result of that, he went to the pastor, and he says, this is not a very friendly church, and he left the church. Not greeting can be very damning and very dangerous. So the rule of thumb is this. Try to speak to as many people as you possibly can. One of the ways that you can do this 
is with this fellowship breakfast that we have arranged for you. The coffee and the bagels, they are very good, but the main function of it is not to sustain you with something to eat or drink, but it is so that you might greet and encourage one another. So you who normally come to the 11 o'clock service, please come at 10.30 so as to see your brethren from the 9 o'clock service. If you happen to be a 9 o'clock person, then please stay until 11 o'clock. Take that half hour between 10.30 and 11 and stay and greet one another. Come on Wednesday night. Enjoy the meal, not for the sake of the meal, but for the sake of sitting down with someone and giving them encouragement, enjoying table fellowship together. I want to commend the young adults of North Shore Baptist Church. I I think you are the absolute best in the church at doing this. For those of you that don't know, Uh, At the close of this service, if it is a normal Sunday, the young adults in this church will stay in this room and they will greet and give encouragement to one another sometimes for an hour after the service has ended. You are to be commended. We need to follow your example. We need to follow your example. And so when you come to church, you should expect that people would greet you, but you all should know that there is an expectation for you to greet others. I heard a story from our missionary in Southampton uh, about one of our interns. Uh, Alicia Grumbach, in telling me about the interns who have come to New York, was telling me about uh, Joshua Gibbs. And as the story goes, or at least as Alicia tells it, that when Josh, on his first Sunday at the church in Southampton uh, was there. He approached a man and said, uh, good morning to the man, and asked the man, uh, are you new here? Uh, the man said, no, I'm one of the pastors here. <laughs> I don't know if that is apocryphal or true, but that is the kind of spirit that I wish all people had, that they were, whether new or here for a long time, were actively engaged in reaching out to greet it makes a it makes a very very big difference uh, this is the lord's day these are the lord's people and so use the lord's day to greet the lord's people all of them particularly if you see someone who is standing or sitting by themselves it is then your responsibility like like you have been assigned by god to go up and to speak to that person greet all the saints Number four, uh, application point number four, read through the book of Hebrews once as we exit it uh, from start to finish. Just start at the beginning and read through. It's going to take you less than an hour. Um, and try to recall as you have gone through it the things that we have learned. That would be a good exercise. Next week, we begin the book of Judges. Read ahead of time to prepare for that. But I would say in saying goodbye to Hebrews, read through it one time. Application point number five, finally and most importantly, please be aware of and be thankful for the grace of God. Grace be with all of you. Be thankful for it, be aware of it, especially as it is seen in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus Christ in saving and sanctifying you. Well, Back in the heart of the pandemic in 2020, when I was finishing up First Kings and I did not know what to preach next, I was told by Joan Pacini that she wanted to hear the book of Hebrews. And so if you enjoyed the book of Hebrews, you can thank her. You see, it was not our goal to get through the book of Hebrews, but for the book of Hebrews to get through to us. 
And if you were listening, you heard some glorious truths about our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and all of the blessings that are ours by grace. And so thank him for that grace. Grace be with all of you. Here's what we're going to do this morning as we close. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to stand, and we are going to read the first chapter of the book of Hebrews together. Dan will then lead us in a song, and you will be dismissed. So this is to start you in your reading from front to back of the book of Hebrews. Thank you for your attentiveness to the word of God over the past two years. Pray for me as now I prepare to give you the book of Judges, but let's give God thanks for the many things that we have learned in the book of Hebrews. Yes, Father in heaven, we praise you. We we glorify you. We thank you, God, that you uh, have sent your son. Thank you, Lord, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the express image of your person. Thank you for the radiance of his glory. Thank you that he purged our sins. Thank you that he seated at your right hand. Thank you, Lord, that he remains forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you that there is a throne of grace where we can go to find mercy and grace in time of need. Thank you, Lord, for the practical instructions that we received. Lord, if there is anybody here who's contemplating leaving Jesus Christ, Lord, may you rescue them by your spirit. Lord, may you use the truths of the book of Hebrews to cause that one to remain loyal and persevere to the end. Lord, for those of us that know you and delight in you, Lord, may we love you even more, having studied this glorious book of the glorious work of your Son. In his name we ask these things. Amen.